this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So how many people do you think you're going to have to talk to about your company before you get an offer? It may be just a handful, but it may be hundreds, if not thousands. And that's exactly the experience that my next guest, John Arnott Sr., went through when he went to sell his managed services company, an IT services company, essentially called Wave 2. In the end, he talked to hundreds of potential buyers, and over that process, he eventually got two letters of intent and consummated the deal with one buyer. And I love this interview because for the first time, it really puts numbers to the funnel, and it gives you the specific stages of the funnel that you go through in the sale of your company, uh, from how many people you have to talk to, to how many people you're going to get signed under a non-disclosure agreement, to how many of those people are likely to actually physically meet with you face-to-face, and how many of your face-to-face meetings will translate into an offer. Now, obviously every deal is different and your deal may look totally different than John's, but I really love the specificity that he shared in this interview and to help you visualize the kind of numbers that often are required to get an offer uh, for the sale of your company. And so to let you describe the process in more detail than I've ever experienced recording this show, here's John Arnott Sr. to talk about Wave 2. John Arnott Sr., welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So tell me about Wave 2. I, I've known nothing about this business, so give us, a, give us a sense of what you guys did. Well, Wave 2 is a healthcare information technology consultancy. Uh, we worked with uh, small to mid-sized hospital systems and growing physician practices and we provided them with uh, three uh, unique levels of IT support. At, at the lowest base level, we worked with providing them with managed IT services. That is, we're, we're running our day-to-day operations, their email, backups, servers, help desk. We pretty much outsource their IT to us. Uh, then we were able to upsell services, more of traditional IT uh, application development, re- improving processes, helping them with business planning, system planning. And then the third level, yes, go ahead, John. Yeah, so you were like the IT guy for small hospitals and doctor's offices. Yes, we were. We were the IT guy, and it was uh, a niche we found, and we uh, relished it. We loved it. Love it. So how how big did you get this business, John, before you wanted to sell? Like, What was the annual revenue by the time you decided to sell? Well, we... We uh, we started we, we started business 2002, uh, sold it in 2012. There's two of us uh, starting it. We grew it to ourselves and 30 consultants, and we were pushing through four million in year eight, and we we're getting towards five million in revenue before we started really thinking about uh, uh, selling the business. Got it. And what triggered that? First of all, I understand your partner was your son which must have added a, a unique sort of element to things. Yeah, it was actually great. I've heard this many times. So John and I, are um, uh, we have complementary skills. Uh, he's absolutely uh, brilliant in IT, one of the best uh, project managers i ever met. He had just gotten done selling his um, – he, he created a database company and sold it successfully to a company here in Dallas uh, and turned out to be EMC later. And then he joined me after I got back from Europe where I was doing my own consulting thing. And we started this business together, just the two of us, and grew it. We thought we were going to start on a traditional IT approach, doing systems for a whole market. 
but we our very first client was a small healthcare hospital system, and that's how we got started. Interesting, interesting. And and how important was it that you had this niche being with in the healthcare space when you went to sell your service? I mean, is there anything different about being an IT guy for a small hospital than than for a uh, you know, a, a sporting goods store or a, uh, you know, a, a grocery store? Like, w- w- was it, was it sort of vaporware that you were selling or was it actually, were there real you know, differences in being the IT guy for, for a hospital? It was absolutely enormous. I, I it was a, um, I've been in business a long time and having this opportunity to be a healthcare specialist and, and managed IT services was, we didn't realize it when we took to work, but it was a godsend. We learned every aspect of running a hospital, every IT operation, processes. We learned all the key problems that were happening in not only in processes, but security and HIPAA. We learned the terminology. And the other competitors in managed IT services, uh, they were not being signed up by IT. They were not even hiring these types of people until we understood their business. So this for us was a true learning experience. And we were able to then build on that and document all of our processes. And then we started marketing our knowledge of their business and their unique problems. So it was, yeah, it was a big leg up in the managed IT world for us to know their business. Was it also limiting, John? Like, I guess there's only so many hospitals in Texas. Like, did, did it limit you at all? Yes, it did limit us. So what we did do was we... As we, we didn't all do this in one day, we, we grew it slowly and we took on other managed IT service clients uh, as well. But we, we found ourselves with that knowledge being able to talk to healthcare associations. And in fact, we were with a large healthcare association doing their strategy for them. We also were able to talk to uh, dental organizations in Dallas and dental groups. Uh, once we've got and understood some of the, uh, the key aspects of healthcare that were going on, in fact, there was uh, quite a bit of things happening and with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, we learned a great deal about the topics and were able to talk intelligently you know, to other aspects of healthcare, not just physicians. But that said, we were doing managed IT services and we had other IT clients as well about our, our mix was, uh, when it was all said and done, we were about 65% healthcare in the early years and about uh, 35% other. Got it. Got it. And so maybe talk a little bit about, you, you know, you crested $4 million, you're on your way to five in terms of annual revenue. Um, you know, what sort of transpired that, that made you think about selling the company? <laughs> Well, actually, it was two things. Um, I was just thinking about this morning. The first one was uh, my partner, John, uh, slid into my office one morning and closed the door behind me and he sat down and and he never does that. And he looked at me and said, have you ever thought about selling? I went, no, no. I, but uh, in fact, I wouldn't know what to do or where to go and how much. He says, so, okay, I'll ask you one question. How much would it take for you to be comfortable? Oh, and I just blurted out this really big number after about a half a minute and we wrote it down on a piece of paper and he said, okay, why don't we double it and add 25% and wow. And then all of a sudden we had on a piece of paper, a number. Now, (laughs) the second thing that happened was about a week later, I'd found this um, merger and acquisition firm in Dallas. I think their name was, it is in fact, generational capital partners. And they put on a seminar for selling how to sell you small business or a business. They're, I think their their target market were businesses from 25 million in gross revenue and down. And I was in this meeting then with John and I and 30 other um, owners. And it seemed like at the break, we all found out we were there for the same reason. Can we sell our business? How much could we possibly get for it? And by the end of the day, and it ended around five, uh, John and I were sitting downstairs having a beer. We went from should we sell to we needed to sell this year? And the reason for that was in the session, uh, the speaker was bringing up the subject of timing of the sale. And he was saying that the best time to sell your business is when it's ascending, not just growing, really taking off more like a hockey stick kind of approach. 
And frankly, there was some pushback in my mind and also a fellow across the road. Uh, in a, and he came back and said, why in the world would someone want to sell their business when it's growing so well? And he came back and said this. He said, you know, when you're at that point, uh, you're in a very rare space. You have very few competitors uh, you'd be competing against. And also, you got to keep in mind, it's going to take you a year to two years to possibly sell your company. And who knows where you'll be then? You could be cresting, in which case you'll be in a bigger pool and, and your price might go down. So John and I kicked that around a lot, that thought. And we had that fellow, his company, come back and meet with us the following week. And we, we took him through our financials and our business plan. And then we said, you know, this is, we should do this. It was, it was time. And that couple, I think too, John, coupling with the fact that we were pushing, you know, nine years of business together, it seemed like a right time to do it. And how did your comfortable number uh, sort of jive with John Jr.'s comfortable number? I mean, did you guys, you know, do you know what I'm asking? Like, were you guys aligned yeah. with what, you're, what you hope to get out of the business? Yeah, it's just sometimes when you have family, it's kind of sometimes things are scary when we come together. And we're so different in many aspects and we're so similar. And so, but yeah, we're pretty close on a number. We really were. Um, we had, so that, so that was a pleasant surprise. And that's how we got started. So walk me through the next steps. What happens next after that beer? Uh, all right. We had the, uh, we, had the merger and acquisition firm came in, they laid out their proposition and what they were going to do was help us write a uh, offering memorandum, which is uh, the business plan that we all say we're going to write someday that we never write and, and put it in a form. And they were going to then market it for us uh, for a base fee. First of all, they'd write it and then they would market it across their channels, much like you were selling a house, if you will. Um, the offering memorandum turned out to be more like the, not quite the listing sheet, but we worked with them for the next, uh, two and a half, three months writing, uh, the offering memorandum, which is, uh, quite detailed. It, and it took us that time because we had to, uh, take all the financials and make sure every bit of this footed across and that it could be something to financials that we could share. And it turned out for us that the shock actually was the offering memorandum was the most important thing we wrote before we sold because it was always there. It was not only what we've done historically, but it was also the projections of where we were going. So a lot of people and, listening to this, John, will, will have never looked at an offering memorandum. So take me through like the table of contents in an offering man memorandum. What, what, what's there? So it's, it's historical financial performance. Uh, what, else, yes, what else is in that document? Let me see. It would be, let's see, first of all, you, in, in there you'd have an executive summary. It would be just like what you and I are chatting about, a business summary, financial highlights, investment considerations. Then you go through an overview of the products and services. What, what it is that you're selling, what's the revenue mix for those, for example, how much managed IT services, how much in development, et cetera, et cetera, and where they're coming in pricing. And now you go into that in quite a depth, anywhere from three to four pages. Then you talk about your customers and your markets. Who are your target customers? Who are your key customers? Where are your geographic markets? And you talk about that in, in maybe two or three pages. Then you talk through your sales and marketing strategy. Your sales strategy, how do you sell? How, how do you get your message out? Uh, how is it delivered? What about your overall marketing strategy? How are you building your authority and trust? And, and how are you reaching uh, new markets? Then that would be followed by your organization, what your corporate structure is, how you're owned, what percentage of the stock. Then staff overview is really critical. For us, we're in a consultancy, so we had 30 consultants, and we had to go through with the quality and the type of people we had, and then the company history is part of the whole organization. And then that's wrapped up with a few other items. One is uh, the facility and equipment we had to sell. We had offices uh, in Dallas that went, went through it, through it. And then 
finally, uh, there's an industry analysis. For us, it was healthcare consulting. So we would look at all the different uh, aspects of how this industry is growing or slowing or whatever is happening to it. And then the final document in this would be um, the financial analysis, which turns out to be what everyone thinks it's all about, but it's just the numbers. It comes down to historical income statements, pro forma income statements, that is your projections over the next two to three years for where the numbers are going to go, balance sheets, and then uh, statements of cash flow. So it's a it's a type of document that's usually ran. For us, it turned out to be about 40 pages long. It became uh, the thing that we discussed with every prospect. It just never left the conversation, even when, even when we got the letters of intent. And then when we finally sold the business, the uh, the offering memorandum was still the numbers that uh, we had started with. And Because you know what you think about it, <clears throat> excuse me, I have to cough here, <clears throat> is we're selling a, a service, a business, and, and this is the most tangible thing you can see is, and this document becomes the tangible thing that you're selling. It's such a good point. And, uh, and thank you for taking us through the, the table of contents because it gives people a sense uh, of what they need to be preparing uh, in, uh, as, as they think about going to, to, to sell. So you create the offering memorandum, so that's helpful. Um, then what? What's the next step for you? Well, well, I think there's a clever next step is <clears throat> you don't want to send this document out. This is a, a highly confidential piece of information. So the, uh, the M&A partner, first of all, we created what we call a one-page summary. And it's an anonymous, uh, it doesn't identify the name of a company. My friend Gower said the title of it was Niche Healthcare IT Consulting for Sale. You know, X, X millions in revenue, Y EBITDA. And we do these types of things in a one-page summary, and they would advertise that document on their channels uh, in different organizations, much like you'd advertise a house or a listing sheet. And does that listing sheet or, or that one-pager include what you're hoping to get for the business, or does it not put a price on it? doesn't put a price on it. Got it. It just put it's, – it's out there as to – if you're interested, uh, first of all, you contact a, our representative. They would get you to sign a, a, a non-disclosure, non-compete document. Then they, we would send, and then they vet you too. They uh, they subtly ask you if you have, uh, do you have a budget to buy? Which I never thought to ask, but that was a clever idea. So our partner would ask these people before we'll send you this stuff. Before we send you a document, are you legitimate? Are you really looking? Do you have a budget? And if they did, we'd send them the document. Uh, they put numbers on this, John. I think the first year when we started, we sent out 250 of these uh, the one-page summaries uh, to people. We sent out. We got, uh, I think, 10, uh, 40 people requested the, the, uh, uh, the offering memorandum. And out of the 40, we vetted down to about 10 leads. Got it. So, so 250 uh, people received the one pager, 40 of those signed the NDA and received the OM, uh, the offering memorandum. Is that That's right? correct? And then, and then That's 10, right. 10 of the 40 sort of expressed some level of interest. How did they express that interest to you, John? Well, they, they came back and they either we had a, they had a phone call conversation with our partner. Well, first, well, uh, life is all about lessons. Uh, the first few leads we got, we completely blew uh, by, we didn't have our M&A guy do the initial phone call with them. We do a phone call before we meet with them. And quite honestly, we weren't ready uh, to get on a phone uh, with prospects. There were two of us on a phone and one we would we didn't have our conversations in tune. My partner and I, he would give a correct answer. Or I'd give something that was a little different, and so it didn't go very well. It wasn't very well organized. So we then uh, regrouped and met with our partner, and we went through every one of the possible questions people might ask. We started practicing what we were going to say, and then we decided to have the M and A partner do all the initials call screenings. And if the person seemed qualified, then they would set up a call with us, a phone call. And if that call went well, 
then we would schedule uh, a physical meeting. And we ended up having, I believe, five physical meetings out of those 10. So it wasn't too bad. Got it. So you start at the top of the funnel, 250 uh, kind of one-pagers, sent 40 offering memorandums and, and the NDA signed, uh, of which 10 sort of had some level of interest, five of them you were meeting face-to-face with. Take us through the next step. How many of those five went through and actually gave you an offer? Well, uh, we, we've got, we'll tell you what we got. We ended up getting uh, the first round uh, there's another round. We didn't get anything out of that, out of those five, the first round. So we ended up doing it again. Define round uh, for, for folks, John. What do you mean by a first round? Oh, that's a valid question. Thanks. We sent these out more than one time. We, every quarter we were actively pursuing. And we started getting in the first round that we when I say first round was in the first few months after we sent out the offering memorandum. After that, we were we were getting in. I bet at, when it was all said and done, we probably got close to twenty leads, and we went through and met overall about seven or eight, at memory call. What we were trying to get was a letter letter of intent. We got people that were interested with parts of the business, but no one was willing to commit to a letter of intent conversations. We ended up getting uh, two letters of intent out of this. Got it. So when you wow. say when you say round, so you you do a round, you'd reach out to 250 people. Again, you went through the numbers: 40, 10, 5, uh, but but nobody ex- did an expression of interest. Then you went a second time to the market. Did you go to the same 250 people, or did you go to a new batch of 250? Actually, we, we were getting, we're going to a larger audience. What the M&A firm did to as well is, and they put this in their contract with us, was they were going to update our financials and information on a periodic basis and resend out. So what they were doing is we actually did updates. Uh, revenue uh, went up slightly. Uh, other services might have been modified. We literally changed the, the summary a bit a bit. And so when he sent it back out, these were updates to people that didn't respond in the first place. But it's pretty much like any kind of a marketing technique. And we kept once a quarter, they would send that out and update our. So we kept updated and then we then we'd get leads coming back in and this whole request for the offering memorandum and then phone call and then possibly a, 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 a onsite or an in-person meeting. Got it. And so you didn't have sort of a, you know, in a hot market in a hot real estate market, you might have a deadline where you say, you know, we're expecting offers on such and such a day. In your case, that that what you, you didn't have sort of a, a deadline uh, in those in that reach out. Is that right? That's correct. We didn't. No. How, how many quarters did did you go through this process before you got some letters of intent? Like I'm trying to get a sense of how many quarters you went through. We went through. It took us our first letter of intent came in approximately in about the 10th month. 10th month. Wow. Uh, And so what was your reaction when you saw the first letter of intent? (laughs) Euphoria. Um, uh, We were thrilled. Uh, We had met, we'd met the group. Uh, They came in, uh, hit it off amazingly. Uh, They were a perfect fit for us. They were in healthcare they sold uh, products and services, uh, literally supplies to uh, physician organizations and hospitals. They're a national, and they were looking for other way. And but their the products they were selling were more of a commodity base, and their margins were slow or low. And they were looking for a consulting in the margins that we had in ours. And they had tried to do. Uh, I had a VP of consulting in that group that was trying to do what we had successfully done in our market. So when they came in, we met, we had several meetings with them. Uh, we bonded very quickly uh, in terms of uh, like what we, the market we could fit into. And it was a great fit. Uh, they came back and they didn't give us a, a written letter. Of, sorry, they didn't give us a, writer, a signed letter of intent, but they gave us a letter of intent but they asked us if they could, we could come out and meet them. They had a offices on a, one of the coasts. 
And we did go out and uh, the merger and acquisition team and my partner and I, we did go out. We met with their entire uh, C-level, uh, the president on down, and then talked through uh, how we would fit into their organization. And the meeting went very, very well. Uh, we, um, we were told at the end of the meeting they were going to send us a, uh, a, a signed letter of agreement within uh, uh, one week. And um, it never showed. It turned out uh, that was our first disappointment. We didn't close that letter of intent. It, it turned out the entire management team was in agreement from the president down. The only person that didn't agree, and it was not in the meeting, unfortunately, was the chairman. Uh, we never found out a reason immediately for that. We did find out that uh, they did sell their company. They're, they sold their company about uh, about eight months later. So uh, we're assuming that uh, the chairman knew something about a pending sale that they didn't know, even though we had a perfect fit. Yeah, so it was a little bit, it was a disappointment. I would imagine. We're, what we're, was the offer in terms of a multiple of EBITDA? Oh, uh, we were probably, it, it, I can give you a range. I was probably somewhere between two and a half, three times EBITDA, somewhere in that market. Two and a half Somewhere three in that area. times EBITDA. And, and w was that all going to be paid up front or was that going to be paid on some sort of earnout or a portion of it on, a, on, a, on an earnout? In that, on that letter of intent, it would have been a, uh, a appeared to us, we didn't have the earnout uh, numbers stipulated, but it looked to be a very small earnout at that particular time. Got it. And so I want to dig in a little bit more on this euphoria uh, feeling. So, you know, when I look at numbers like two and a half, three times EBITDA, um, I wouldn't use the word euphoria. I'm, I'm curious as to why you use the word euphoria. What was it that, why were you euphoric to get that offer? Well, there was part of us that we were selling is we had a, uh, a great program that was doing very, very well in one small market. And, it, and our business model was working building on top of basic services on top of that and business intelligence and the other things that we were offering. And we saw in this an opportunity to take this uh, nationally and uh, just grow it dramatically. We, we thought that the, the earn out at the back end with, uh, would be huge for us. There, we're talking about, put this in numbers, that, that first letter of intent, they had over 1,000 salespeople uh, working in physician organizations. And that would have been our front end sales group. So we saw the, while we're selling it and the three times, we, we saw the upside for us staying with that organization and growing it. That's That was the conversation that we had. It wasn't officially in the letter of intent, but that was a conversation. We thought we could grow it and do even better there. Got it. And so there was some component of earnout, even though it was it was relatively minor. Right. Okay. So you lick your wounds. Uh, what next? It sounds like you got a second offer. Yes, we did. We got a, a second offer, and that and that came in uh, not directly through our merger and acquisition firm, but the fact is that we were out in the marketplace. We had a fellow. A man had contacted me oh two or three years prior. And let's call, him, let's call him Bruno for another name. But Bruno called me, and the first time he contacted me, he was trying to buy our managed IT services business, and it was, it, was, uh, it was one of those offers that I never wanted to talk to Bruno again. It was such a terrible uh, offer. It was like next to nothing. Um, so I got this call from him, and, and he literally said to me, John, and he identified him, so he said, now don't hang up. He said, so... He said, listen, let me tell you what's happened. Uh, since you and I talked years ago, uh, our company was acquired by a very large uh, multinational firm. And I am now, and they are in the process of buying, looking for uh, managed IT service companies uh, in the Dallas area. And in fact, they are serious because they have uh, they purchased over 10 companies in the last year alone. And so I said, wow, okay, well, and he said, we're, I'm really interested in, you know, we're starting over again, talking about, I've been following what's been going on in, in your business. I'd like to talk a little bit more. So I said, sure. And I met with our, our partner. I had him contact him. And then he, 
the uh, potential buyer brought in uh, one of his officers, and they they did in fact confirm that they were hey, it did were purchased by this large company. They were actively buying managed IT service companies, and uh, that's how we got the conversation started. So, so, so where did it go? At what point did they send you a letter of intent? Well, here's what happened. Uh, a week later, the senior vice, there were two of the, the CEO of the company, uh, which was a division. This is a large multinational firm. And the senior vice president flew into my office. So let's call Bruno the guy that you met with originally. Let's call, let's call the big multinational company, because I know we can't talk about it publicly. Let's just call it Giant Co. for the sake of our conversation. So, so the senior vice president of Giant Co. comes into your office. Is that right? That's right. He he came in and the CEO of the managed IT service division came and they flew in from the coast, met with us in our conference room. And we spent two hours whiteboarding our business model with them. And at the end of it, they they pretty much confirmed that they were trying to do what we were doing in the healthcare market with managed IT. And they couldn't figure out how to upsell and grow that practice. And we were showing them how we can do that with our knowledge of uh, healthcare was going on. John, are you nervous at all that you're you're giving away the keys to the kingdom in in sharing all this information with these guys? What was to stop them from just kind of taking the information they learned in your boardroom and and going and competing with you? Well, there are two two elements to that. Number one is I'll use it. I know how to put. That's my son. So I know how to put Christmas tree lights up on my house and everyone knows how to do it, but I don't want to do it. These fellows didn't want to know, just know they wanted someone that could show them how to do it. And we were, they had people on their team. Uh, they were charged with this responsibility of growing. So we're just telling them how we took our knowledge and, and used it. Uh, we weren't afraid because we were actually getting the, the job accomplished. They were looking for an insight. They didn't have the, uh, well, I'll get back to your question. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of it because um, it's one thing to tell people how to do something, and it's another thing to do it. I think that's probably where we were at this point. Got it. So keep going. So what does the SVP of Giant Co. and the president of the Managed Service Division do next? Well, we went to dinner, the, and uh, let me tell you, they uh, – two really professional guys. We went to dinner immediately right after that. We sat down. They had, uh, they looked at us and they said, look, here's what we like to do. We like to, um, we like to give you a letter of intent. Here's what it would be. Uh, we'll send you the letter next week. It will be, uh, we'd like to purchase all of your assets. Um, the requirements would be that the two of you have to come with the deal. Uh, because we're not buying just your assets, but we like to have your, your what you know about this business. Um, it would be a you'd have to work with us for one year, and there would be a uh, an earn on at the end. And did they give for you one a, year? Did they give you a number, John? At that point, did they say it's going to be X amount of money or yes. Y multiple of EBITDA? Yep. And okay, so w without getting they into gave us Go ahead. correct. Yeah, that's exactly what they did. So it was about a five-minute conversation. And, did uh, they, and so what, they laid it out for us. What was the multiple of EBITDA they were offering? Uh, it was a little over three times. Got it. So they're offering a little over three times. Did they say if that was um, if that included the earn out or if that was sort of the cash component of the deal? Did they get that detailed in that conversation? No, we, it was the uh, we he gave us he gave us the number. Uh, it, we we figured it out based on at that time we'd gone through the uh, uh, the offering memorandum. We knew exactly what the numbers were at that particular time, and so we were we were bantering around what approximately what that number would look like. Got you it. know, we're, so we we knew what the amount would be. Uh, we knew what the percentage of the earnout would be. Um, we knew that would be a one year commitment on our part. And they want to know right then if we're interested. What was and the percentage so, of earnout they uh, were they were offering? Like, what what proportion of the deal was on an earnout? Uh, I think we we're at twenty percent. Got it. And so they wanted to know right there at dinner time. 
So which said which was fine with us because we said yes. Tell you why I said yes. Uh, those two, we in a few short hours uh, we turned came to trust them. They knew what they were talking about. We had some really in-depth conversations for those three plus hours. Uh, and you can find out quickly about what people know or don't know about it. They talked about what they were going to provide the organization they had. And we had done some research too on them before they showed up. And it sounded like a good deal. One of the things they were offering was this uh, giant co here is uh, national and international. Well, for us, it was a national footprint you know, thousands of people in their organization across the United States uh, access that way to grow the business. And they offered us a very compelling, uh, uh, you know, frankly, employment agreement, too, for us to stay. It was they gave us a, a very, a very lucrative employment agreement, too. Where's your m and So it, was a, it seemed like a where's he at? Yeah. Is, is he at the um, dinner with you? Was he in the room during the afternoon? No. Meetings? OK, no, he's. No, not at all. He uh, at this point, he had he he had talked with them on the phone, and then he briefed. We briefed and talked, but then it was just John and I in the conference room, and there was John and I in the uh, at the dinner. Why didn't the M and A guy come to the dinner or the conference room meetings? I think at this particular time, well. Here's what we did before they showed up in the conference room. We knew they were coming. I think we had a few days' notice. The M&A guy sat with us in our conference room, and this is what we did. We went through every objection and question that we'd have so far over the last year plus, uh, like 12 or 13 months. And we did a Toastmaster presentation. We got up and we practiced talking about each of the aspects of our business, our markets, our targets. Um, it was a very punchy whiteboarding presentation, and he, the three of us went through it. So he wasn't there because he'd already worked with us on preparing us, getting us ready for that conversation. So when the fellow came in, just like you asked me, like, John, what do you do? Or what? tell me a little about the business. Uh, my partner, John, and I did an intro. John got up and we whiteboarded out the, the business model, uh, why it was growing. And we just went right through it. And uh, we were well prepared because of him. But we had to practice. That, that was a big lesson we learned. Uh, just having talking off the cuff isn't uh, sufficient at that time. So we were ready for that conversation. So what happens after dinner? You agree verbally to the, you know, the, the, the broad strokes of the agreement. Did the, the formal letter of intent then show up? Yeah, truly there were. Uh, the letter of intent showed up uh, the next two days later. Uh, along with uh, with that letter of intent, you know, as soon as we signed it, we received a uh, a huge document that we had to prepare for due diligence. It was, oh, I think I spent three or four weeks working on this document uh, that we had to prepare about every aspect and detail of our business. So the next step was we got the letter of intent. Uh, we both signed it. And then we received the package to start the due diligence process, which was uh, took a lot of time and effort. I should imagine. I took us, I think, overall. Yeah, it was it was spreadsheet after spread. Now here's this: they were well organized. You know, this is the same company that just purchased ten other companies, and they had a fact a, a a implementation team. I think eleven or twelve people. And they had this package of information they sent out to us in spreadsheets. And, and the challenge was not so much just putting the data together, was that we had to put together the data together confidentially. We had a staff of 30 employees. Um, and one of the things we did not want to do was uh, have anyone know they were going through the cycle. What was the We didn't want our customers to know about it. Yeah, of course. What was the biggest... Um speed bump that you ran into or obstacle that you ran into during that due diligence phase? Hmm. Well, the, um, the data gathering was, it was, uh, it wasn't so much the uh, speed bump through the due diligence. Well, it, the problem was getting the data they really wanted uh, confidential uh, conf without having to go through all of our, our staff to try to find it. So we ended up bringing our merger and acquisition firm 
a partner in, having him sit in our conference room, and as anyone come and have him go through and help us uh, pull together the numbers and from different sources. And our team wanted to know who he was. And we told him, we said, well, we're, he's helping us to reorganize and improve our operations. So we're going through all this data, and which was true. By the way, that, that's just an aside I, like, I wouldn't mind just doing a shout out on. Um, that M&A process uh, of when we put together the, the offering memorandum, I bet we improved our, our profitability like 3 or 4% in that process because we ran into all the things we were doing lousy and poorly and things that didn't make sense to an outsider. And so we had to make all these changes and processes and got rid of things, added things. It was a... It was a profitable experience. So even if we didn't sell, I was I was feeling good that uh, we're improving our business process. So back to your question, speed bump on that was just the sheer uh, physical aspect of pulling that data together and cross-footing all these different numbers, cross-footing contracts think, and amounts and so forth. Yeah. Do you think the employees... Yes. In your company, these 30 consultants, do you think they bought the, the fact the guy was there just to improve operations? Or, or did, did, did people gossip about maybe there was something else to this? I think they gossiped a little bit. I think they knew there's something was going on. Um, I think they, they knew it. Uh, they'd seen a couple of people coming. We really didn't have a lot of people coming in our office. Uh, he was the only one. But I, I have a sense that some of them did. But quite honestly, I don't. I think most of them did not. No, I don't think because we. How did you end up telling them that you'd sold the company? Oh, hmm. well, that's one thing I'd do over again. <clears throat> we what, we sold the business. We signed a contract. Uh, the money was passed, which was an interesting process. How that works? A fun part, I might add. Uh, and the way we did the announcement is the, the entire management team of uh, senior management team and part of their integration team showed up about a week after we sold the business and we had a uh, all hands meeting in our conference room, a large conference room we took. And we introduced them as uh, our acquiring partner. And then we stood up and we, we just literally told everybody at the same time that the company is now, uh, we're now part of this uh, very large organization. You mentioned you do that uh, differently if you had to do over again. Why? Uh, well, it was a shock to many people. It was you. What we what we didn't understand at the time was well. First of all, I think they probably could have done a better job of introducing themselves. They weren't they weren't as smooth as they could have been. Uh, plus, there were a lot of open questions in our mind. Essentially, from our vantage point, it looked like everyone was in shock when they heard about us selling. Uh, and the first thing, when you're shocked, you worry about what's going to happen to me in the job. And the, the good news is uh, none of the jobs changed. Everyone was uh, part of a new organization. But a number of people had been uh, – we had a different group set. The company that was acquiring us was a largely managed IT service group, which was a technology skills were at, you know, basic to good. Uh, our best people, we had some leading business intelligence developers. We had some very high-end systems application people. Right. People that were easily in demand anywhere else they wanted to go. And so they were a little skeptical at first as to whether or not this was going to be a good fit for them because they knew the name of the company it was a nationally known name and they weren't sure if it was going to be a good fit, if things were going to change, if you will. Um, and I think I could have done a better job of reassuring them that things weren't going to change in that meeting. I, I let the acquiring uh, company do all the talking and uh, I think I could have done a better job doing it myself. You mentioned the money passing being, I think you used the word fun and interesting. Tell, tell us about that. Well, <laughs> well, it was fun. You know, this is a this is doesn't happen every day, right? Um, a substantial amount of money. Well, what I had to do is make the practical arrangements for getting the money. When you sell your company, I didn't know these things. I'd never sold a company before. You don't you don't sign a contract and a check 
is put in the mail and it shows up in your front door. No, uh, you sign a contract online, for example, with the senior vice president of international operations sign and the CEO sign. And then that document online immediately went to myself and my partner, John, and we signed. And as soon as that was, you get a signal, you get a uh, an alert saying, uh, contract executed. And with that, you get another sign that says, money deposited. So I went over to my bank and told uh, told the uh, my account representative, I said, look, where's a substantial amount of money that's going to come in? We made arrangements what account we should put it in. And then I told her the amount. And she says, oh, my gosh. Uh, I said, look, I need to know if the money is actually in the account here, you know, because I'm not sure. I want to make sure <laughs> that when I sign this thing, the money is there. She said, well, not a problem. Not a problem. As soon as you you sign that thing, give me a call and I'll tell you if it's there. So <clears throat> we signed a document. They signed a document. We got the little sign executed. So I picked up the phone and I called her and I said, <laughs> and I said, Elaine, it's, it's John. It's there. It's there. It's, she was bouncing over the place. So we're all, <laughs> it was like, my gosh, it was so exciting. I still get goosebumps just remembering the whole thing. She was so much fun about the whole thing. Oh my gosh, it's there. It's there. So anyways, that was a fun time. <laughs> I love it. Did you allow yourself any indulgence? I mean, did you, did you go and buy anything that is a sort of trophy for the win? <sighs> Well, you know, uh, we had my, my wife and I, yeah, we, we, it wasn't crazy stuff, but we did some things, you know, when you grow a business and I'm sure many of your, your listeners can relate to this, when you grow a business yourself from scratch and your partner, you've got, a, you, 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 you take a lot of things, you take out loans, you have, um, you know, you take care of yourself last and your business goes first. So what we did when. After that, uh, my wife and I, as soon as we paid off, as soon as we received the money, we paid off all of the people that helped us, the merger and acquisition firm, tax people, lawyers, et cetera. And then we paid off everything that we owned, uh, all the loans, credit cards. So we had a, you know, one day we went from, you know, some debt to no debt. And for us, sitting in our kitchen one Saturday morning, <sighs> We said, my gosh, we've never been in such a good place. Hmm. Obviously, I still remember it. So what do we do? We took anybody we could find out to dinner. You know, I called everybody up, uh, my friends, my neighbors. We, uh, we went out for dinner like, you know, for about 10 times in two weeks and just had a, had a wonderful time enjoying it. Um, we ended up giving some money to uh, people that deserved it people that needed help with their businesses. Yeah, we did that. But, um, it was a great feeling. It was, um, I think, John, what, what happens to you when you sell, and you know this, but when, when you sell, there's a, a real sense of vindication that here you got, you built something, and there's people out there that are really interested in buying it, and that is something valuable. And so we felt really good. I mean, we had a we were fun with the money. We were able to help other people, uh, took the pressure off my wife, all these crazy years of me building the business. Um, and we just enjoyed it. We just enjoyed the time for the first month or so. Yeah. What a fantastic story. Um, John, where can people learn more about you or where can people get in touch? Um, I understand you've documented some of this. You've written a book. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I wrote a book. Uh, it's called Acquired, and I'll read the title to you. It's Acquired, How I Sold My Small Company, Merged into a Large Multinational Firm, Barely Survived the Transition, and Exited Debt-Free. And I wrote the book. Uh, my daughter is a publisher, and that's one of the businesses she owns. And I wrote it to uh, first uh, for my grandkids because my son, my daughter – my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law, my wife and I are all small business owners, six of us. And the chances of one of my four grandkids uh, being a small business owner is probably pretty good. So I wrote this book detailing what I went through from beginning to end, the things that you and I were highlighting, 
uh, the whole marketing, selling, the acquisition, then the transition in, and then the exiting, the whole part, everything. And then I, I wrote this, and it's, and I uh, written that. And we, my son and I uh, ended up starting another business. We, we asked each other a couple months after taking a couple months vacation. We said, hey, do you want to do something again? And we decided to do something again. And, and we did. And we started a company uh, working on the one thing we never thought we did very well. So I thought we could, but that's a, that's a real benefit of selling, by the way, to work on something you always thought you could do better. And for us, that was marketing and selling. We could, we were great consultants. Our clients loved our work, but forever, we're ever looking up and not having enough pipeline. So we started a company for ourselves. It's called Content First Marketing. We went out uh, the first year. I think we bought and built about 85 websites of our own just to learn how to do this. And then we taught ourselves about digital marketing. And we started experimenting on how to grow a business from scratch using digital marketing techniques. Uh, And we got pretty good at it. And then about 18 months ago, about 12 to 18 months ago, we decided to get back into consulting. And the, the big aha moment for us was in building these sites was in order to grow your business online digitally, it's easy to get people to get to your site once or twice. But what brings people back and what builds your authority and builds your trust is content, really good quality content, content that you'd share with your, your spouse or your boss. So we built this company called Content. Yeah, go ahead, John. No, I was just going to say, so the, so the, the company is called Content First Marketing, and the book is called Acquired. John Arnett, Sr., I'm so grateful for you sharing your sto- or the story. Oh, gosh, John, it's, it's, a pleasure, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, I think you're doing great work. I wish I had uh, been listening to your, t- your podcast about 10 years ago. Uh, I appreciate the time of speaking with your, uh, your listeners as well. Well, thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.